0: It's Monday, December 12th, 2022. Brand new broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. And I'm so happy to have you all here with me between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday. And then around the clock on demand on our free podcast. Our online home for all of that is GuyBensonShow.com. For the podcast, you can also go to or or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight in the 6 p.m. hour. That's on Fox News Channel, Brett Bayer and the whole crew. Looking forward to that. Here is our lineup on today's radio program. Michelle Tafoya making her debut on the radio show. Can't wait to have her. Longtime fan of hers on the sports side of things. Sports journalist, sideline reporter for many years most associated, I would say, with the NFL. She has since sort of stepped away from the sports scene, wading much more into culture and politics, looking forward to bringing her on and asking her opinion on a number of issues, including this Brittany Griner swap. In the next hour, Dr. Marty McCarry is back on COVID. He's got a new piece out today about long COVID. We'll also ask him about some of the censorship involving true things. Factual information about the pandemic during the pandemic on Twitter, which we're learning about in the Twitter files. Another topic that we will tackle with Byron York in our middle hour. He will be here on that and more. And then finally, I want to just make a note of this, and I'll be promoting it a few times today. In our last hour, the happy hour, 5 to 6 p.m., we do a lot of different things on this show. We give you some different looks, different sounds. This 5 p.m. Eastern hour today, our last hour, is going to be unique. I don't think we've ever done an hour like this. There's a woman named Laura Osnes who was, for years, a huge star on Broadway. Leading roles. She was being feted all around town. And then she did not make a big deal out of it, but she had declined to immediately go get a COVID vaccine and her whole career and life in New York just collapsed almost immediately. And she is now emerging, creating some new music, telling her story publicly this way for the first time. And so we will talk about that. I think it's been tough on her and her husband, but also they are lovely people and we might try to get a little bit of her singing. On the show. We don't really do a lot of live musical performances here on the show, but today could be an exception. That's in our final hour. So, so much to get to as we are underway on this Monday. Thank you all so very much for listening. I want to start with a story that's maybe slightly off the beaten path a little bit when it comes to politics, but it involves a story that we have been tracking on and off now for a couple of years. Many of you are well aware. Of the absolute obsession on the left, within the Democratic Party, and within the media, because they're typically all, for the most part, on the same team, pulling for the same outcomes, hating the same people. There was this obsession, and still is, frankly, with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. I've made the point many times, and I'm sure I'll make it again, that it is beyond obvious how much they fear him politically. They have been on a mission almost really since the moment he won in an upset in 2018. He was supposed to lose. The polling showed him down. They were all excited about Andrew Gillum, the Democrat. Like, oh, he's a person of color. He's going to make history. He's a socialist. We love all of these things. Well, Gillum lost. DeSantis won barely by 0.4% in 2018. And then four years later, I think we all saw precisely why they fear him politically as acutely as they do as he improved that victory margin this past November by 19 percentage points. Winning by close to 20 points in the state of Florida, which is still just like a mind-bending thing to say. Just doesn't happen there, but now it has. By the way, Andrew Gillum, you can Google what he's been up to. Since losing that race, and I think in many ways, Florida dodged a bullet. And they got very different leadership than they would have otherwise. And DeSantis has parlayed that to one of the most dramatic and impressive political victories I've ever seen in covering politics. Now, why am I talking about all of this? The media, acting as the attack dog, as they so often do. For the Democrats, just taking their talking points and their narratives and running with them and trying to enforce them, coming after Republicans, it's what they do. It's not unique to Florida, not unique to DeSantis, but they really focused on him hard, I think because of the perceived potential threat. Let's home in on this future threat to our power and try to sort of kill his career in the cradle now that he has achieved – this higher office, this was back in 2018. So it has been nonstop. And so many of those attacks and assaults on his credibility, on his integrity, on his governance, on his policy decisions, it's just like never ending. And they would come after him, often in an underinformed, half-baked kind of way. And he, for the most part, would just run circles around them because he's a lot smarter than they are. And he anticipates the attacks. He's prepared with knowledge. And he, for the most part, treats the mainstream media as the opposition, which is, in fairness, by and large, what they are in practice. So in the process of getting their rear ends handed to them over and over again and embarrassed, the 60 Minutes episode really comes to mind as sort of paradigmatic of all of this. One of the humiliations that we saw over and over again was someone making some sort of outlandish claim about DeSantis or Florida or his administration. And then because it fit a certain narrative that people wanted to believe, they would all just together stampede toward that storyline or toward that allegation, and it would be all over the place. And then it took – some aggressive response from the DeSantis camp and others to correct the record. And it was just like a pattern over and over again, this would happen. One of the people who I think really represents this phenomenon is a woman called Rebecca Jones. You might remember her that name, right? Might ring a bell. Rebecca Jones was this woman who claimed to be this, what data scientists or whatever in Florida, who she says was ordered to manipulate the COVID data, and she said, I'm a whistleblower and look at my bravery. I am proving that Florida is lying about their COVID pandemic outcomes, which, of course, the media and the Democrats wanted to believe so badly. They needed Florida to be uniquely terrible because they couldn't allow DeSantis' leadership to be a success. The fact that he had done the research, done the homework, read the data, they couldn't abide that. The lockdowns and the restrictions and the mandates from people like Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom had to be correct, and the alternative approach from guys like DeSantis had to be wrong. So when the data wasn't actually going along with their little story, they were willing to latch on to anything that might have helped confirm, quote-unquote, what they wanted to believe all along, and Rebecca Jones served them up on a platter, a story that was catnip for them. They're manipulating the data. They're lying about the data. They're forcing us to change it. I know because I'm on the inside, and now I'm being harassed and retaliated against, and they came to my house with a SWAT team and pointed guns at my children, and I'm a victim and all this stuff. She was out there saying a lot of very dramatic things, making a bunch of allegations, presenting herself as some sort of martyr, And she built quite a grift on this whole posture, a very dramatic grift. And a bunch of people played into it, played along with it, wanted it to be true, put her on television, amplified her claims. And as we've established multiple times over on this show, including in several interviews with Charles Cook at National Review, who's really, uh, I think, done yeoman's work on this. It's just a giant pack of lies. This Rebecca Jones character is a liar, a kook, a conspiracy theorist, and a criminal. So she's a great whistleblowing source who discredits DeSantis, except for all of those things, that she just lies about it all. And for a long time, a lot of people were complicit in her grift, in her lies including prominent journalists, major Democrats in the state of Florida. They just shared this stuff credulously. Now, she's got all sorts of issues. For example, I know she was facing some sort of charge related to a sexual relationship that she had with a student when she was teaching at Florida State, I believe. That's a separate question. There was also this charge, this criminal matter, of her illegally accessing computer data and personal data down in Florida, basically getting disallowed access that she was not allowed to have and using it and abusing it for her own purposes, which was a felony. And, of course, you know she's claimed everything is a witch hunt against her and everyone else is lying. And, by the way, Charles Cook and his pieces that he's written, it's defamatory. She's going to sue him. Spoiler alert, she never did because he was just telling the truth. Well, from floridapolitics.com, here is a story that I saw was just updated. COVID data critic Rebecca Jones reaches agreement on felony charge. Jones has admitted guilt to charges of illegally accessing Florida's computer system and agreed to repay investigation costs, perform community service and undergo mental health counseling. This is from floridapolitics.com. A fired Florida Health Department data manager charged with illegally accessing state computers after she publicly accused officials of wanting to make COVID-19 statistics look less dire has reached an agreement with prosecutors that should result in the case being dropped. She's admitted guilt on this charge of illegally accessing the computer system, requiring her in this agreement now to pay $20,000 in a fine to cover the cost of the investigation which was launched because of her lies. She's been ordered to perform 150 hours of community service and to see a mental health counselor monthly. If she completes these requirements, the charge will be dropped within two years. So she's admitted that she did it. She's got a fine community service and mental health help that she's being forced to go seek, which quite frankly, it seems like she desperately needs. Now, because she's a grifter and totally shameless, she is trying to claim that this is complete vindication and a victory for her. Even though she's admitting guilt, she's trying to pretend like in her public statements that she's still not guilty, even though for the purposes of the court, she had to admit guilt and pay the fine and do all this restitution stuff, which I guess in her brain is a win, quote unquote, and vindication. The grift continues. But this effective plea agreement speaks for itself. It's been a rough few weeks for Rebecca Jones. She also managed to get herself nominated as the Democrat running for Congress in Florida's first congressional district. Yes, she exploited the giant grift and lie to win the Democratic nomination. She got a bunch of votes from Democrats, credulous, go-along, conspiratorial Democrats in Florida One. To become the Democratic nominee in that district for Congress. She was up against an extremely flawed Republican and sort of embattled Republican Matt Gates. What a what a race that must have been, those two, head to head. And Rebecca Jones lost by 32 points, 36 points, 36 points. So she got crushed at the ballot box and now this. Now why bring this up to open the show? Because there has to be some accountability when people latch onto folks who turn out to be total inveterate serial liars for partisan reasons and narratives, like Michael Avenatti comes to mind. He was all over TV, MSNBC and CNN. He basically had shows there. How often he was on? I remember, people say, "Oh, he might run for president." Very serious, might run for president. I think that was Stelter. Anna Navarro at The View said something like he's – she had some very weird thing to say about him, like nominating him for sainthood or something. Oh, he was just recently sentenced to 14 years in prison. He's been accused of a bunch of different crimes and now convicted of some of them. So there goes that resistance hero. Here's Rebecca Jones, totally discredited, but people treated her like she was credible and serious because they just wanted to believe – DeSantis had to be bad, so someone making things up about him had to be good, had to be credible. Look at this courageous whistleblower. Well, how'd that work out? How'd it work out for her? How'd it work out for them? And how'd it work out for Ron DeSantis, who just won re-election by almost 20 points? I guess that's the accountability. I did see that Chris Cuomo, formerly at CNN, who's now, I guess, somewhere else, ousted anchor over at CNN— was still kind of defending her on Twitter, trying to pretend like some of the stuff that she said wasn't discredited, and it appeared that he was just conflating issues and getting confused and actually didn't know that she was also discredited on the COVID manipulation data lies. Just all falsehoods all the way down with this woman. But I guess Chris Cuomo is still invested in enough of the narrative that he's willing to embarrass himself publicly By half defending her to this day. Kind of amazing. I would say he should feel some shame for this, but I'm not sure if some folks in that family are capable of it. I mean, look at the older brother for crying out loud. So, so ends, at least for now, this chapter in the Rebecca Jones saga. It should be a cautionary tale for some folks. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't, but that's the resolution. And, boy, I hope that the mental health counseling works because it seems sorely needed in this case. Just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. We will be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
3: More next. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well, I'm Guy
0: Benson. I saw this headline in the New York Post and had to chuckle. It's about Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced FTX CEO, this crypto guy who just like burned up billions of dollars or whatever it was, just disappeared. I should point out that he's a Democratic mega donor as well, or he was, which is maybe why a lot of Democrats were happy to look the other way. Well, the headline is Sam Bankman-Fried to testify before Congress remotely because he's, quote, quite overbooked. He's at some pations overseas, I think in the Bahamas. He's been doing all these interviews from this luxury place where he lives with whatever this remains of his ill-gotten fortune. Doing a ton of media interviews, some of them treating him bizarrely well and nicely like way more polite than they are with like your average republican lawmaker and congress wants to bring him up and grill him in person in dc and he just oh he's too busy guys he's going to hang out in the bahamas he's just so overbooked plus he said he's worried about the paparazzi being too much <laughs> just absolutely shameless michelle tafoya coming up next guy benson show
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free after the show is over every day. On demand, no charge to you. With us now for the first time on this program, very excited, is Michelle Tafoya, former NFL sideline reporter. Many years. I watched her season after season. And now she is host of the podcast Sideline Sanity, which I was honored to join. We love it. As was a couple months ago. And Michelle, it is great to have you here.
1: It is so nice to be with you. I'm, I'm
0: thrilled. Before we get into some of the news of the day, just for our audience, some folks who might not be familiar with your career and career trajectory, just give us the broad strokes of your background and how you ended up sort of in a new media space recently.
1: Yeah. Well, I was a sports fan growing up and I married my love of broadcasting and sports. And just really fought and fought and worked really hard to to climb up the the rungs of the ladder of forecasting, and I wound up with the greatest job. I was ultimately the sideline reporter on Sunday Night Football, uh, enjoyed spectacular seasons there. Monday Night Football before that, the NBA, the Olympics. I've done a lot of different things, and I mean, truly, I was it was just an honor and a privilege, and and uh, you know one that I worked very hard for, but. Um, I ultimately, I got to this point where I thought I I have so much more to say. And if I'm going to say it, I could, (laughs) I could court a little controversy to the number one show on television, Sunday Night Football. And that wouldn't be really in anyone's best interest. So ultimately, I just chose to leave so that I could speak more on some of the issues I'm more passionate about these days.
0: Were they just sort of stunned when you were like, Thank you, but no thank you. It's been real. It's been amazing, but I'm going to go do something else. They're like, wait, w- what? This is this is Sunday night football. What are you talking about? I know.
1: I know. The first time I gave notice, because I gave notice way back in 2018, I said, okay, next year's going to be my last year. And, yes, my producer, Fred Goodelli, sat across from me and said, I was not expecting this. But they, they, you know, look, I'm really close to the, my crew, Al and Chris and Fred and all of them, Drew, as a cop, our director. And I felt like – um we always had these really fun debates in the car not not all of them were fun but and they knew where I stood and I I said to them ultimately you know I just I gotta I gotta do more stuff I gotta speak my mind about these other things and I respected the fact that um I could I really just would be a distraction to Sunday night football if I stayed on there and did that so they had plenty of plenty of notice, uh, you know, the covid and then the the Super Bowl sort of strung out my stay there. I hung in there till this last Super Bowl. But um, and, and when I say I hung in there, that's kind of silly to say, because it's not like it was terrible. It was great. It was the greatest job ever. But, um, yeah, I think I, there was one point where a couple of them said, you know, you're crazy. Don't you know that you're just absolutely crazy to be doing this? And maybe I am. Maybe I was. But I don't yeah. care. I feel so much more liberated now.
0: Well, you know you know that I'm not the biggest NFL fan. I watch, of course. I'm, I'm more of a college football guy. But to me, the gold standard is Sunday Night Football in terms of just the, the production, start to finish, the little details. It's just a, a fabulous production every week and some of the best in the business. And it raised my eyebrows when you stepped away from that. Do you think – and I promise we'll get to news of the day, but I'm just fascinated by this. Do you think – that if your outspokenness had been on the other end of the spectrum, if you were more progressive and more inclined toward Democrats and the various, you know, culturally popular or salient things that the left is always up to, if you were in that vein in terms of your beliefs and your worldview, would there have been that conflict or would they have been happy to have you, you know, on the Sunday night football train and doing that stuff? Is it because you're a conservative or did they want to keep politics maybe? more out of it entirely. I just wonder what you think of that.
1: Yeah, you know what? I honestly think they wanted to keep politics out of it entirely. They saw what politics was doing to the NFL. They saw ratings decline when the, the anthem issues were going on. Yep. And quite frankly, Bob Costas, who was an iconic sportscaster and a Hall of Famer, had been hosting our pregame and halftime and did a couple of um, – essays, if you will, one in particular that mentioned gun control. Yeah, guns. He had death I remember arrest. that one. So, yeah. So, I mean, that was on the other side. And, you know, it was a major distraction for the network, even though it was trending left. So I do know that it was just trying to keep it all out of it. Look, people tune into sports to be entertained, to have some fun and not, you know, I think for the most part, people just want their politics left out of it.
0: Yep, I'm I'm raising my hand because, you know, i st- steeped in politics. I marinate in this stuff all the time for work. And when I tune into sports, I want to just have that escapism, which is not to say they can't ever say anything. The athletes aren't entitled to their opinions or anything like that. I just feel like it's the aggressive shoving of politics down the viewers' throats that really bothered a lot of people, myself included. And I do get the sense, and I wonder if you agree with this or not, Michelle. Maybe I'm imagining it. Maybe not. It feels like in the limited NFL that I have been watching in the last couple seasons, that there has been a move back towards just sticking with sports. It felt like the politics may have hit a high point or a zenith a couple of years ago. It doesn't really feel as political anymore to me. Are you getting the same sense or am I missing it? Because I'm not watching it as much. Or I'm watching, you know, the red zone whip around. So I'm not, you know, right. following the storylines and stuff.
1: No, I think you're right, and uh, one of the examples I like to use is I was watching a uh, Buffalo-New England Patriots game a couple weeks ago, and now the Bills, if you look at an NFL helmet, on the back there's a little kind of strip that's right above the player's neck, just at the bottom of the helmet, and for the Patriots, that little strip said the Patriots, and for the Bills, each player chose you know, choose love, stop hate, End racism or create change, whatever their phrase was.
4: Okay. And I
1: remember watching this because for a while every team was was using those those st- and you can see it in the end zones. Stop hate. You know, there's a lot of those those phrases. Yeah, they the I actually. Know. I saw
0: that yesterday. I was I was yeah. mostly averting my eyes from the Giants' destruction at the hands of the Eagles <laughs> in the Meadowlands, but they had some end racism things up there. I was like, I agree. Let's end racism and end this game.
1: yeah. Okay, so, but I found myself thinking, I'm, I look, you can say whatever you want on the back of your helmet, I don't care, but it's kind of, I I find it kind of amusing now to watch these players, you know, busting each other up, tackling, just throwing each other to, gr- to the ground, and these hard hits, and then the back of their helmet says, you know, choose love. It's yeah, just, love it's wins. It's kind of it's fun. Love wins. It kind of <laughs> makes me chuckle a little bit, but I have noticed that a few teams have gone back to just having like the Patriots on the back of their helmets, and I think I yeah, think that I think yeah, fans just want to cheer for their teams and and their favorite players.
0: Michelle Tafoya, you said you've done a lot of coverage all around the world, all around the country, various sports. You mentioned the Olympics. Did you ever cover a World Cup? No, I have not. Are you following the World Cup at all this year?
1: I I am. I am. I, I find this one to be I think we got a little sucked in by team USA and they you know they actually advanced they actually made the World Cup and I think they were fun to cheer for. And so now it's gotten kind of fun to look at these different there's some superstar players. Um but there've been some weird stuff going on and it's uh yeah. it's 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 it, you know look I've covered Olympic Games in places where Olympic Games probably shouldn't be. We've seen them in Beijing more than once. We've Mm -hmm. seen them in Russia. We've seen countries get access to these, and and some people call it sports washing, rather than trying to hide their sins behind the the sport and you know so this this world cup just got very very interesting with the death of a journalist and then the death of a photo like within 24 hours yeah that's myself, a very go ahead it's weird isn't it no it's, it's, it's weird. very
0: weird it's very weird because the the whole hosting by cutter of these games there have been all sorts of allegations about Corruption at FIFA, that's nothing new, and then slave labor and then questions about human rights and dignity and all this stuff and one of the journalists who was asking a lot of questions and really, I think making the Qatari government's life a bit miserable was this guy Grant Wall. I quasi recognize him a little bit, I guess for American soccer fans. he was kind of the ultimate journalist and who was widely respected. And he's a young guy who just died over there, and people are wondering what happened. I don't want to get into any conspiratorial stuff, but I think that an investigation, a, a thorough independent one, is absolutely necessary. And then someone else, as you mentioned, covering this World Cup. Another journalist just died. That is a weird series of events, Michelle.
1: It is. I, I can't recall ever— seeing anything like that and because of the location i mean look if we were in sydney australia like you know the 2000 olympic games i don't think we'd have this curiosity or the eyebrows raised that we have but we're in cutter right so yeah and and now the the thing about the the american journalist he was apparently complaining of not feeling well had had some diagnosed with something akin to bronchitis we just don't know but it, it seems as though his death happened rather Instantly, rather quickly, um, not just a slow, labored in the hospital kind of death. Uh, this second photojournalist is also very suspicious, and and yeah, I, I I think again when you allow these countries that have sketchy human rights reputations and proven human rights um, violations, I just don't understand. Well, I do understand it. It's it's money. Always follow the yep. money. Yep. These these dictators manage to spend a ton of money wash their countries. And it's it's despicable to me that the IOC, FIFA, these different institutions keep doing it. It's just it's just wrong.
0: Yeah, and I mean you have these authoritarian regimes who are very much unaccustomed to criticism and then, you know, internally, of course, it's totally stamped out. And then you have a bunch of people showing up from liberal democracies in the free world in the West saying, uh, actually, we're very concerned about slave labor and we don't like what you're saying about, you know, gay rights and and putting down people's liberties and that sort of thing. And one of those critics ends up dead. I'm you know, I think that it's a leap to say these things are necessarily related. But obviously people are asking questions and you get the second death. I mean, let alone the deaths of workers constructing these stadiums and stuff. I mean, there is a stain on these games, setting aside whether you're a soccer fan or not, I'm really not. It is uh, pretty disturbing some of the stuff coming out of there. And you wonder, will there ever be sort of enough is enough sort of moment where these international committees decide that money doesn't matter as much to them um, and that they're going to stand up for the values that they at least you know pretend to have? And I know the, the FIFA leader put on a whole dog and pony show about woke stuff uh, at the beginning of this World Cup, which is like total fraud based on. You know, FIFA's track record and the fact that the games are where they are. But it's it's been kind of disturbing to watch. And and perhaps relatedly, there's a big New York Times story I saw yesterday about a massive brewing scandal, corruption scandal in the EU. And the I think the EU parliament involving money allegedly flowing from the government of Qatar, uh, influencing decisions being made by the EU, policy decisions. So, I mean, follow the money is absolutely right, Michelle. I want to ask you another question about a separate issue at the intersection of sports and geopolitics. That is the Brittany Griner matter, the release. And we've tried to have a a serious and fairly nuanced conversation about it here on the show. I keep saying that almost as this qualifier because there's a lot of other people out there just shouting as loudly as possible how awful the deal is in every way or how wonderful this is in every way. And I think that there is a little bit of truth on either side of this where you're happy, at least I'm happy, for Brittany Griner and her wife and her family and that she's home. As an American, I don't care what she's said about the country or whatever. She's an American. She deserves to be home. There are also extremely concerning things about this swap, about who was traded, about the Uh, The implications of this and the incentives that get structured around this. If you grab Americans, you can get a lopsided deal. You know, that is what the message that's being sent to a lot of these hostile governments and regimes. I mean, you you can't get around that. And yet, Michelle, I was mentioning this on the air the other day. I was watching at the gym when I was in New York, an ESPN segment uh, shortly after the news broke. And they had a panel of people just sort of all smiles, totally celebratory. If you didn't know – Any of the important details, you would think this was just like this lovely thing that the Biden team had orchestrated. Isn't this great? And isn't this a great thing for the WNBA and, you know, for people of color? And she's a woman of color and she's LGBT. And isn't this all just a big win? And by the way, this other guy got released in exchange. It was sort of like buried. I feel like that kind of conversation really doesn't do a great service to what is a pretty complicated question.
1: Now, that's fairly typical of ESPN, I hate to say, as a former employee of ESPN, but they have gone very much in the woke direction and just limiting it to this, this identity politics, the identity of Brittany Griner. Randy Weingarten did the same thing in a tweet. I don't mm-hmm. know where she – why we even care what she thinks, but she did tweet out, oh, it's great because she's black and she's gay. And it's like, wait a minute. Can't we just narrow – just this is a human being who's an American citizen, and it is great that she's coming home. But like you, I think we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. This did not seem like an even trade at all. I, I, I mean, you're calling this guy kind the of merchant of death, um, and was this was this the right thing to do? And it does, it did look very weak to me. It reminded me of the Bergdahl tra- trade, quite frankly, yes. some years back yep. under Obama, where you you were just willing to give up. So much These violent, vile criminals to get someone home. That means that sends a signal. Well, yeah, we'll be just about to get someone home. Well, hold on a minute. No, I'm not saying this trade would have been better if it was just the the one guy for, for our Marine who happens to be over there, Paul Whalen, uh, I'm not sure that would have been any better. Um, I, yeah, you could I,
0: argue that it'd be better in some ways, but the incentive problem is still there. And this guy who's been released is really dangerous. And I just saw Chiron on Fox News Channel like seconds ago. That DEA ward, uh, agents, DEA agents, are now warning that the so-called Merchant of Death is back in business. So uh, that's another wrinkle in this, a serious one that we're following. Michelle Tafoya, we've got to leave it there for now, up on a break, longtime NFL sideline reporter, host of the podcast Sideline Sanity. We'd love to have you back. This was
1: great. Anytime. Love it. Thank you. Take care.
0: Michelle Tafoya on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy
2: Benson Show.
0: Still to come on The Guy Benson Show, Dr. Marty McCarry in the next hour, along with Byron York. In our final hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Laura Osnes, longtime big Broadway star, will be here in studio talking about her rise and fall from that Broadway community where she was a, a superstar, widely beloved, and then came COVID and the COVID vaccines and a lot of pressure and mandates over that, and all of a sudden, she was on the outs, Totally shunned. It's an incredible story, actually. That's coming up later in the show. I did see this. There's a piece in Politico that has an exclusive about, quote, a pair of progressive organizations operating in complete secrecy, complete secrecy, that spearheaded a $32 million campaign during the midterms to push back against Donald Trump's, quote, unquote, stop the steal movement. So they poured $32 million into races, dark money, across the country progressive money and it's run by people who believe in transparency in government and politics but not for themselves they wanted to operate in secrecy and so they did and i guess some dark money in our politics is a good thing as long as it's left-wing dark money (laughs) it always happens that way doesn't it
2: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: Diving into a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the content and info you need right there. Podcast is free on demand after the show's over every single day. Catch me tonight on Special Report, the 6 p.m. hour Eastern. That's on Fox News Channel. I'll be on the panel this evening. Fox News alert as we begin our second of three hours with the Dow soaring today, 528 points at the close, finishing up at 34,004. And this market update is sponsored by Americans for Prosperity. Committed to empowering every American to realize their American dream, as champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. Find out more at AmericansForProsperity.org. I am very proud to partner with AFP. With that, let's get to Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins, author of *The Price We Pay*. And, Doctor, it's great to have you back here.
5: Good to be with you, Guy.
0: Before we get into some of these uh, COVID-related topics, this one, of course, has some relevance to that. But I would like to get your reaction to the revelation in the Twitter files, which we'll be talking about later this hour with Byron York, that Dr. J. batachara I'm not sure if I'm exactly getting his name right from Stanford, that he was basically blacklisted, suppressed. His, what turned out to be correct guidance on COVID was A lot harder for people to find than it should have been by design under the old regime at Twitter. Just your overall response to, I think, something that a lot of us suspected, but now we've got some confirmation and evidence.
5: Well, first of all, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a very good friend of mine, and I very much have respected his views on COVID, even when I haven't been totally aligned with them. He is a highly respected physician, and I know him extremely well. He's not bitter. He's not angry at Twitter for the way he was treated. He's just very upset that children paid the price of Twitter censorship because he was an advocate for schools to be open, Mm -hmm. for kids to be able to live their lives. And he fought for a population that does not have a lobby or a right to vote. And that is why he's extremely sad to learn about the censorship of Twitter, of his advocacy work.
0: And I think what The the folks who would defend this, the apologists of the old way of doing things at Twitter would say, well, the scientific consensus was X, Y, and Z. And so people who were involved like he was in the the declaration that he signed and saying let's hold our horses on some of this, especially on schools and kids, uh, they were sort of fringe or outside the mainstream. It almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if people say – well, if you disagree with this consensus, you're fringe, and therefore you shouldn't be heard from. It almost is like creating the justification to put those views out on the fringe, even if they should absolutely be central parts of the conversation.
5: <laughs> well, look, if we follow the group think, and when you're a doctor, the sad thing is you know that a lot of doctors aren't not reading the studies and thinking critically. They're just going along with the consensus And that's scary when you talk about the human rights violation during most of COVID of not allowing people to visit their dying loved ones in the ICU. One of the most cruel things that all the hospitals were doing, 100% groupthink, 100% wrong. There was no reason a teenager can't go in to say goodbye to their dying mother. And yet every hospital did it. So groupthink is dangerous. But if we start banning and censoring other ideas beyond the groupthink, we wouldn't have Galileo. We wouldn't have Einstein. Hippocrates would probably be you know, in jail or have his license suspended by the state of California's new law. So innovation and great ideas come from those that challenge deeply held assumptions. And in fact, that's exactly what science is. It is a methodological process to challenge dogma and deeply held views.
0: Doctor, you have a piece that's out now at the Wall Street Journal online and it will be in the paper tomorrow I believe talking about long COVID that phenomenon and the way that you say it has been weaponized so let's talk about this I know there are some folks saying that long COVID is kind of a myth or it's psychosomatic or you know people who think they have it it's really something else I know a few people who've suffered from it and it sounds like an absolute nightmare so I don't want to dismiss it but you're arguing that a relatively rare phenomenon was treated as much more broadly uh, experienced and suffered by a lot of people as sort of an ongoing excuse to maintain certain policies. Just sketch out some of your argument, if you would.
5: Well, thank you for saying that, um, Guy, what you just said, that long COVID is real. As a matter of fact, I started this Wall Street Journal article that came out today with this very sentence, long COVID is real. I have patients who are suffering from it. And let's not deny it that's happening. But the way that it's been massively overplayed is a, really exaggerating a complication almost to support an agenda. The CDC, for example, suggests that it's somewhere between 20 and 50 percent of those who have COVID will develop these long-haul symptoms. But, you know, it takes time to recover when you're very sick. And long co- COVID is less severe, and that means long COVID is far less likely. And when they put the statistic at 20 to 50%. The UK did a large population study and found that it was only 3%. And then studies have since come out showing, have shown that if you have another non-COVID illness, like some other infection, like the flu, your rate of long-haul symptoms is almost equal to that of COVID. So it's, it's not... Specific to COVID, it happens after a lot of infections. Now, there are hallmark unique findings with COVID, like loss of smell and the brain fog symptom is more common with COVID. But let's put things in perspective. The government has spent $1.2 billion from the NIH on long COVID research, which has, which has given us nothing. The return on investment has been zero. For these people suffering with it, but the hospitals and clinics and MRI centers and lab tests are making a killing from this new long COVID industrial complex. So we need to put things in perspective. And, and honestly, after all the public trust that's been lost with the CDC, people just need honesty. They just want they want straight talk from doctors. They don't want things like long COVID massively over exaggerated as the government is doing right now FDA commissioner even saying that get your bivalent vaccine to prevent long covid basically that's not true there's no data behind that long covid is increasingly rare as population immunity grows
0: i do want to ask because you know i've now had two shots and two bouts of covid once you've had a bunch of prior immunity does that maybe not guarantee but make it much more likely that I'd imagine at some point down the line, I'll probably get it again, uh, that it will be relatively mild because I've already gone through it a few times or not necessarily?
5: Yes. every With every COVID infection, your future risk should be dulled because your memory B cells and memory T cells do remember that virus and produce antibodies more readily when you get exposed to a future strain. Now, some strains are partially evading immunity, but they're not completely evading immunity. So there is this effect of essentially dumbing down variants. Now, it's not a perfect rule. That is, there's a, there is a possibility that it, a new mutation could entirely evade immunity. But most experts I I trust say that's Uh, unlikely, and that we're seeing the trend that is common with most viruses. Remember, there are four coronaviruses that have circulated for decades, and they are already just caused the common cold now. It's just
0: important to not take exceptions to the rule and try to turn them into something to scare a bunch of people. Like I, I do have one friend who had three COVID shots and then three rounds of COVID, and the third COVID was her worst by far, which is it happened. But it's also highly unusual, and that goes to your point about long COVID. I know people in my life who have it, and it's awful, but basically everyone in my life has had COVID, and only a tiny fraction of them have had long-haul symptoms. So I think perspective uh, is always important, following the data and not narratives for various agendas, and that's one of the reasons why we like to have Dr. Marty McCary on the show, Fox News contributor. Doctor, of course, his piece in the paper tomorrow, out now online at The Wall Street Journal about long COVID. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Guy. The Guy Benson Show will be right back after this short break. Don't go anywhere. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So this is sort of interesting. The New York Times is having a big labor dispute with their internal union. I have not followed all the details, but I'm Kind of like rooting for injuries type situation. It's the Iran-Iraq war. New York Times journalist versus management. It's like, can they both lose and make this as embarrassing and painful as possible for everyone involved? Not to be overly spiteful about it, but it's just the self-righteousness of these people complaining about it and beating and thumping their chests about it on Twitter while also threatening to quit Twitter because Elon Musk is such a threat. It just, like, gets to be pretty tiring, to Follow any of it. So they had a little walkout, like a little mini strike a few days ago, I believe it was. And it was funny watching all the virtue signaling leftists on social media saying that they were going to stand with them by not going to the Times website or using the Times resources or platforms that day as like a sign of solidarity. But a lot of those same people are obsessed with Wordle which is owned by the New York Times, so people were agonizing about whether or not they could keep their streak going with Wordle. (laughs) So some of them, I think, kind of cheated and went and did the Wordle anyway. So they're scabs, or whatever uh, the terminology is. So at this walkout, uh, one of the people who spoke and was one of the chief agitators, of course, is this woman, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who seems to me to just be a left-wing activist. It's unclear what she does journalism-wise. She did the 1619 project that was riddled with errors and criticized by historians, and she spent a lot of time on social media agitating against her critics who were interested in actual facts. And even though she is, I guess, on the payroll of the New York Times, a number of people have been pointing out she doesn't really produce much journalism for them. In fact, it looks like her last byline at the Times was more than a year ago, which seems like a pretty nice gig. I don't know how much money she makes. But if she's getting paid from the times while not doing anything for a year, at least in terms of producing content, and look, I I'm someone who produces 3 hours of radio content plus television content plus one or two pieces every day at townhall.com, you know, I feel like content creation is a very important job when it comes to content creators <laughs> who get paid for that, but I don't know, maybe that is just sort of, you know, white supremacy or something like that. Uh you'd have to ask her. But Nicole Hannah-Jones spoke at this rally, so this is what management, I guess, is paying her to do, is to fulminate against them. And she was talking about how hard it is. She was standing next to an inflatable rat, which is what they do sometimes in these, uh, these union picket events. She said, I know what it's like to work at a newspaper and not make enough to pay your bills. I worked two jobs until I was 30. I was a reporter. Then I sold mattresses at night. Can you imagine buying a mattress from her, by the way? She's like, all these mattresses are a little white. Anyway, she was uh, railing against the New York Times. And this detail from New York Magazine, different publication, I thought was kind of interesting. Donald McNeil was present. Remember who he was? We actually talked about him in Woke Tales here on the show. McNeil was their longtime, I believe, science reporter at the New York Times. had been there forever. And because it was revealed... People had hung on to this. People had dredged up this story that was years old, and I guess it was during the period of time where they were just trying to cancel everyone for any reason. It was like the racial version of Me Too, and they were just, quote-unquote, resurfacing things and finding ways to get people fired. And it was especially bad inside the New York Times for a while there. It might still be. I'm sure there's quite an unhealthy environment and culture of fear. In some of these media outlets in the newsrooms but mcneil i guess had been i'm hazy on some of the details but you'll probably remember maybe what happened he was on some bougie trip for rich high school students i believe in south america and he was one of the experts who was paid to be there to help enrich the experience for these kids when they were doing some sort of science related elaborate field trip out of the country And I guess at some point the students had mentioned a fellow student who had used a racial slur, whether it was the N-word or uh, similar or something in that category, and had been harshly punished. And they were asking this New York Times reporter at the time, Donald McNeil, if he agreed that that was uh, fair for the student to have been punished the way that he or she was. And McNeil, in responding to this question about this issue – I guess, used the word because it was central to this sort of ethical dilemma he was presented with. That then, in turn, I guess, offended some of the students because he had said it in this context. They, I guess, told someone, people sat on that for a few years, and they decided, we got to go cancel Donald McNeil. So they did. And eventually, the New York Times management was like, no, we're not firing this guy. It seems like You know, intent matters and all of that. And, you know, this is an unfortunate event, but we're going to move on. And people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and these other hardcore activists in the newsroom said, no, that's not good enough. He needs to be gone. This is intent doesn't matter. This is all racism and systemic racism and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, I guess, management just threw in the towel and said, well, all right, sorry, I guess he's too racist. And they fired this longtime reporter probably why people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and her compadres, or comrades, if you will, feel like they can keep fighting management in terms of this labor dispute because they forced them to cave before. Anyway, Donald McNeil, the fired former reporter, showed up to this protest, to this picket line in solidarity with the people who got him fired. He was wearing an old union t-shirt. This is how much of a union... Dude, he was, I guess, and a brown leather coat and was just like, hey, you know, I'm here. And he was ousted from the paper. Ms. Hannah Jones specifically had played a role in the ouster, but he stood there nodding along as she spoke. And he was quoted saying, I thought she was great. I, is this woke penance? Is he trying to sort of build back some goodwill with the mob to have another chance to do his job? and then just walk on eggshells for the rest of his life that he doesn't offend them somehow because he's like out there basically applauding this person who is part of the mob that took his livelihood away and a big part of his identity over some nonsense. And there he is being like, yeah, no, I thought she was great. Dude, have some self-respect. What a strange and fascinating little ecosystem it must be to be burrowed that deep into this like through the looking glass woke world. But that's what's happening over at the New York Times. I guess the dispute is ongoing in various ways. I'd say we're going to follow it closely here, but we probably won't. I mean, good luck-ish to some of them, I guess. I don't know. But I thought that that was just an interesting little glimpse and a very strange one. It's like I'm not sure I would be rushing to go help those folks if they had stabbed me in the back the way that they did. But I guess part of the self-flagellation is – You have to do that forever. And of course, I bet you they would plunge the knife right back in given the opportunity again. Maybe she'll do that, you know, in the next year long break she takes between bylines. I guess we'll see. Guy Benson show back after this.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through today's show, new broadcast week on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. With us now, Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, welcome back to the show.
4: Hi, Guy. Good to be here.
0: All right, let's talk about the Twitter files, some more developments today. Barry Weiss tweeting out a series of internal documents that she has poured over involving the suspension of Donald Trump from Twitter. And it sort of is of a piece with a lot of the other things that we're discovering, where it just kind of looks like a lot of the people in the previous regime running the show at Twitter were willing to just apply or misapply standards selectively based on sort of their capricious political whims or what they felt in their gut might be right at the moment. It just didn't really feel like anything was terribly consistent and applied that way, which is, I would say, precisely what a lot of the critics have been alleging now for years.
4: Yeah, I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. And in the specific case of Trump, uh, it was clear from some of the earlier um, uh, tweet threads that we've had about this uh, is that there were people inside Twitter who were just itching to ban Trump. They wanted to ban him long before January 6th. January 6th happens, it creates far more momentum uh, for this to happen. Now, still, uh, they need a reason. Uh, and on the, uh, let's see, I guess on January 8th, tw- uh, Trump tweets out um, that he is not going to attend the inauguration. I mean, it's 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 just a completely informative tweet. Quote to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. Well, people inside Twitter are saying, well, you know, this is not a violation of anything. He's just kind of making a scheduling announcement. It's it's very newsworthy, by the way, that a president would not attend the uh, inauguration of his successor. But they just Mm -hmm. want to ban him anyway, so they do. Um, And I I think what it shows is, is what you were saying, which is. There, there are things that they want to do. Uh, they create a set of rules that mostly allow them to do that. And if the rules don't allow them to do it, they just do it anyway.
6: Yeah,
0: they try to find technicalities. And even when they can't, they're just like, well, never mind. And look, I have been extremely vociferously critical of Donald Trump and January 6th and a lot of the incitement and lying that led up to that day. I put a lot of that on him. I haven't shied away from that criticism. But if you're going to be dropping the ban hammer on certain people and not others, including horrible despots around the world, there needs to be some rhyme or reason to it. And part of what I think is frustrating about this, Byron, is they actually had certain rules in place where it was like five strikes and you're out. And Trump hadn't gotten to the point where he would have been eligible for the permanent suspension or the ban. And they just kind of decided – amongst themselves even while admitting in some of these email threads or correspondence like, hey, uh, this doesn't really quite count as that. He hasn't done X, Y, and Z. And then at some point they're just like, oh, well, down comes the boom anyway and he's out. And it's like, well, what's the point of having rules if they're kind of fake to begin with and ultimately you want to do something so badly you're going to go forward with it anyway? It really vitiates the whole purpose of having rules in terms of service if they don't really mean anything when push comes to shove.
4: And this is what they would wanted to do anyway. Now, I should say, you know, that on December 19th, 2020, uh, Trump is you know tweeting that uh, it 's absolutely impossible to believe that he did not win the two thousand and twenty election. All the evidence overwhelming evidence shows that he wins the two thousand and twenty election there 's going to be a big protest in d c on January sixth Be there will be wild, so he uses Twitter to promote. The protest on January 6th. He doesn't say we're going to storm the Capitol on January 6th, but he uses it mm-hmm. to promote um, the the protest. So, you know, maybe Twitter. And could to repeat have the lie, by the that. way,
0: that he won the election and say all the evidence shows that he won the election. Well, yeah. That's not yeah. true.
4: But, you know, on the other hand, uh, Barry Weiss points out the way Twitter has dealt with other world leaders. Uh, for example, she quotes a tweet in June. uh, 2018 of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei in in Iran saying, quote, Israel is a malignant cancerous tumor in the West Asian region that has to be removed and eradicated. It is possible and it will happen. So they they didn't delete the tweet. They didn't ban the Ayatollah. Um, and so you you look at the standards that they – or the lack of standards that they have or the differing standards that they have, and uh, it, it's very clear that they're obsessed with Trump in this period, uh, and they just want to get him.
0: And it doesn't matter if it's him tweeting about domestic politics in a way that they don't like or is a lie or is dishonest. They were going to really scrutinize that carefully because they're – Fellow tribal leftists were all very angry about it, so they were focused on that. But you could have this other leader, as you point out, basically talking about the need for ethnic cleansing or genocide and wiping a nation state off the face of the earth that happens to be the one Jewish state in the world, and it's just sort of like, ah, that's that's a shame, and I guess it didn't rise to the level of outrage for them to take any sort of major action. It's that kind of double standard, or I think to your point, lack of any real standard That drives a lot of people up the wall, even if they're not huge Trump fans, myself included. I think this was not fair. I think it's a terrible look for Twitter. It is kind of what we expected the case was all along, but they denied it. That's the other thing, Byron. There were all these allegations and then hardcore denials. No, that's not true. And then a lot of the people who were just... Stenographers for Twitter saying this is a conspiracy theory from conservatives. None of this is true. Their new standard seems to be, oh, well, we all sort of knew this was true, but technically the term wasn't shadow banning, so that wasn't really happening even though in practice there was shadow banning. It just seems like the goalposts are flying around to the point that it's like head spinning. I don't even know – it's hard to keep track of people's new standards and changing – rules for this stuff, which yeah. is almost like an appropriate homage to the old Twitter regime, actually.
4: Some of this is coming so fast that uh, the revelations are coming so fast. I mean, it's hard to really um, to process them, and it'll just – we'll just need more time to do it because the what we've learned just so far about Twitter's regular meetings, with the FBI and the uh, Department of Homeland Security and other elements of the U.S. national security, law enforcement and intelligence world uh, is really troubling um, and it it needs a lot of investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the FBI, for example, which is forbidden from, say, uh, 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 canceling a publication or pulling something out of publication—they're forbidden by the First Amendment from doing that. Were they just getting Twitter to do it instead, which is not forbidden by the First Amendment from doing it? Um, there's there's just so much to learn, and it's and it's all been coming really really fast. And frankly, since Elon Musk has insisted that this stuff come out. On twitter it's coming out in a kind of a piecemeal tweet sized way that's a little harder to make a a sustained case than it is. This is long form journalism coming out on Twitter, which is difficult
0: yeah, and it's also kind of hard to follow some of the threads and keep track of it all and you just see like little random screenshots sometimes of you know like tweet fourteen out of one of the threads, so that's a little bit tricky, but yeah, I think one of the points that you raised the fbi's role in all of this especially the Hunter Biden stuff. We talked to Miranda Devine about that last week. If the government was effectively enforcing censorship through their friends and allies, technically in the private sector, so they can try to say, well, if you squint, it really isn't a First Amendment violation because we aren't the ones officially doing it. Someone else is doing it at our behest. At the very least, it raises very serious questions about violations of the spirit of the First Amendment, if not more direct violations because of what you just described, the pressure and the influence that government officials did have over this process and over some of these companies, not just Twitter, but other big tech companies as well. Last point on this, Byron, I also saw Michelle Obama's name coming up, the former first lady. What's that about?
4: Well, uh, the former first lady released a statement, which she released on Twitter. It was kind of a longer statement, uh, which uh, she tweeted out on the on January 8th, and she basically said, without saying Donald Trump's name, please ban him from Twitter. We need to ban these voices; they're attacking our democracy, et cetera. Um, and so that's gotten some some. Um, uh, coverage as if perhaps that was the thing that sort of pushed Twitter over over the side uh, over the edge to doing it. I I don't think that's the case. I mean, think back to January 7th and January 8th. People were very emotional. Uh, they have a lot of strong feelings about what has just happened on January uh, the sixth, and there are tons of people calling for Twitter uh, to ban um, Donald Trump. Uh, you know, there are people calling to impeach Donald Trump, which was done. Um, and so, I think Michelle Obama is one of those voices, but probably not a decisive uh, factor in any. Yeah, way. but
0: maybe one that people inside Twitter who are already inclined to agree with her and like her, she's a big high-profile figure who's venerated on the left and have someone like that come out and say something political, which she doesn't do all that often since they moved on from the White House, that might have had an impact inside Twitter, HQ, and other places saying, oh, well, even Michelle Obama, we don't want to disappoint her. We love her so much. So it could have had an impact. These are all things that will need to be unpacked for weeks to come probably. We're just getting little glimpses from some of these journalists doing this work right now. You mentioned Trump's impeachment, Byron. That was the second impeachment of Trump, the one that I thought was justified. The first one I did not believe was justified. I was uh, more circumspect on that, the whole Ukraine matter, which I thought was inappropriate on his part but not impeachable and removable. I said maybe something like a censure for abuse of power uh, would have been, in my mind, something that was appropriate, and I made that case here on the air and at townhall.com. One of the central figures in impeachment number one, the Ukraine stuff, was this guy Alexander Vindman who is now seemingly like super unhinged, and he's been tweeting a lot. I saw he compared Elon Musk to Goebbels and the, the Nazi comparison. It just seems like there's a lot of people out there, Byron, whose brains are just broken right now.
4: Well, I, I think um, the retired uh, Colonel Vindman, uh would certainly fall into that category, played in, uh, the critical role. Um, in uh, the first impeachment of um, uh, President Trump, he was the person who was on uh, the National Security Council staff who was listening to the Trump-Zelensky call at, live as it took place. And Republicans who uh, impeached uh, – excuse me, who defended uh, Trump in the impeachment um, believed that Venman was the person who informed the uh, whistleblower who uh, who – brought this case to uh democrats in the house Gosh, feels like it was a decade ago a whistleblower who has never been publicly identified which is just an extraordinary thing of something of that import uh, a a uh, an impeachment of a president uh, beginning with a secret accuser who stays secret the whole time that's just another issue. But Venman has since become a pretty loud voice on on Twitter and seems to get emotional a lot. I've never met the man. I don't know the don't know the man. But he does seem to get kind of worked up and now he's worked up about Twitter and Elon Musk.
0: Yep, and you know, dropping Nazi references and comparisons which I think is just deeply unbecoming and totally deranged and it seems clear to me that maybe he was focusing some of his derangement on Donald Trump, and now he has transferred that now to Elon Musk. And a lot of people on the left seem to have done that. If they're a little bored of Trump, he's not giving them what they need to scratch that itch. Well, now it's Elon Musk who's filling that role. And of course, Musk is uh, in some ways inviting it and egging them on a little bit. And if they're taking the bait, they're certainly doing it with gusto. And it's just a Kind of a bizarre thing to watch, especially someone like that who was treated as this very serious person who's a this unimpeachable you know, patriot and all that. Now just firing off some of this stuff, which is unhinged on Twitter. It's just a glimpse into some of these issues, I think, underlying for a lot of people. It doesn't apply totally to one side or the other, but just an interesting note on that. Last but not least, Byron York, on the border, our colleague Bill Malugin, who we are working to get back on the show here in the next couple of days – He continues to show what is happening at the southern border. We're getting close to that Title 42 expiration, which all the experts down there and officials say will be a disaster. I mean, it's almost hard to imagine it getting worse. It is as bad in some respects as Malugin has ever seen it, a complete mess down there. And, Byron, we're starting to see a few more bipartisan calls for the president of the United States presiding over all of this to at least go look at it. I wonder if at some point they give in to the political pressure or they truly don't care and will hold the line of not even pretending to go down there to take a look.
4: Yeah, what uh, Bill Meluchin has been posting on his Twitter feed today, um, dy- dystopian videos of mass crossings. Uh, illegal crossings of the U.S. border is just extraordinary. This disaster is actually intensifying. And and we always say it's hard to see it getting much worse, and then it actually does get worse. And, you know, on Fox this morning, Dana Perino said, you know, if you're not watching, I don't think you – if you're not watching Fox, you're not seeing that this is happening. That's and I think right. that's absolutely true. So many, so many media outlets are just ignoring this, and this is huge. And I, I will say of the, of the things that a Republican majority should be doing and in investigating in the House. It is hard to think of anything that is a higher priority than this disaster on the border. They have a lot to – yes, Afghanistan was a disaster, and they should investigate Hunter Biden. But it's hard to think of anything more critical right now than this ongoing disaster on the border.
0: Yeah, total catastrophe, rolling, ongoing, and likely to get even worse somehow. Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor here. Byron, always appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back.
2: Fresh Conservative Talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson Show, this is interesting. A group called Americans for Public Trust putting out this report. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, an advocate of increased government action to curb carbon emissions has taken at least 18 flights using taxpayer-funded private jets since taking office, according to flight tracking data obtained by Americans for Public Trust. So they quote Caitlin Sutherland, who's the executive director of this group, and she says every day Americans face flight cancellations and long wait times because Pete Buttigieg has completely mismanaged air travel, yet he gets to avoid all that, By taking taxpayer-funded private jets to destinations with readily available commercial airline options. And so for someone so holier than thou on reducing emissions, Buttigieg sure doesn't mind to seem all the pollution caused by his literal jet setting. And this press release also points out a story that we covered at Fox News when former HHS Secretary Tom Price under the Trump administration resigned under a cloud of controversy because he had flown 26 times. On private jet flights. Transportation Department saying, well, Buttigieg, it was more efficient sometimes. Sometimes it saved money. They're defending it. Price was basically forced out of his job for doing something at least in the same ballpark and not as a big climate warrior on private jet usage. So a story to watch with Pete Buttigieg developing here in Washington, D.C. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. It is a happy hour unlike any we've ever had on the show. Two guests in studio, a Broadway star who was living her best life until it all came crashing down and her career was taken from her due to COVID mandates. It is quite a story. You're going to want to hear it. Stay tuned on The Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer right around 645 Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel. See you there. This hour sponsored by our friends at The Finish Long Drink, which is delicious. Alcoholics, so 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Well, we're doing something a little bit different for the show here in our final hour. We have certain patterns that we get into, and they're good, but I like to break the mold occasionally. And this hour is going to be unlike really any hour we've ever done here on the show. I have in studio here in D.C. Laura Osnes and her husband, Nate Johnson, who I met for the first time at a wedding in Nashville a few months ago. Some of our friends were getting married. Adam and I were down there. And we were at one of the bars, I think, upstairs in the venue, and I was introduced to this couple, and they were nice looking and seemed very pleasant. And then I was told they had quite a story and quite a background, and that is absolutely true. So Laura has been, for a big part of her career, a huge Broadway star. She's been in movies. She won, and I did not know this until I did more research for the show today, her big breakthrough – was winning NBC's reality TV show, the competition "Greece," You're the One That I Want, and then she starred on Broadway in Greece as Sandy, I believe. That's correct?
6: Yes, indeed.
0: And that just launched you into the stratosphere. You were in multiple shows on Broadway, two-time Tony Award nominee, and all these accolades. And you might be wondering at home, okay, that's interesting. They have some new friends who have been very accomplished in their lives. Why is this on the radio show? let me just tease this. The entire career, the friend, quote unquote, network, all the professional connections disappeared within the last few years because of COVID and a decision that they made on vaccines. And it went from toast of the town to literally out of town. And that whole story to me is absolutely fascinating. It's very frustrating, I think, especially given all we know now, scientifically. But I think it's also just an interesting human story as well. So, Laura, Nate, it's so great to see you again. It's great. Hi. To be
7: here. Hi. Thank you for having us. I'm over here just nodding. Yes, and you're just, like, that's all right. Yes.
0: You have said nothing wrong so far. <laughs> yes. So let's just start with this. And feel free to boast or if you need your husband to brag more about you. <laughs> I'm good at that. Like, you were a bona fide Broadway star for... Years. How did that come to be? I know I mentioned you won the NBC show, but you've been on stage before. You both have really good singing voices. How did you sort of begin that path? to stardom.
7: Yes, well, thank you. Um, I came out of the womb, I think, singing, dancing, and acting, and it's something I always had my heart set on. When I was five years old, I sang Castle on a Cloud from Les Mis, if yep. anyone happens to know that musical. if any, Even if you're not musical, most people know that one. Young Cosette. Yes, exactly. Very good. <laughs> I sang that in my kindergarten talent show. Um, I started taking voice lessons when I was eight or nine and dance lessons when I was five or six, and I did my first show in second grade. I played a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz at community theater, and it's something... My heart was always set on, and it was a, a, something that always brought me so much joy. I think my parents saw that I had a gift for it and really encouraged me in that direction and um, even when I was little I remember saying I want to be a Broadway actress when I grow up Um, and I'm so grateful that I got to do it but it was really kind of what I feel like I was put on the planet to do born to sing and dance and act on a stage specifically it brought me so much joy and uh, kind of icing on the cake is getting to affect an audience right and and really make people happy or entertain them or challenge them to think differently or inspire the next generation uh, to do the same thing that I did
0: well I have to admit that after we met. And after the wedding, Adam and I went back to our friend Brad Thor's house where we were staying. Yes, yes. And I had had a few drinks. We all wedding, had. perhaps. Yes. And I was in bed and I got on YouTube and just went down the rabbit hole on your performances. <laughs> I'm like, yep, she's really good. This Aww. is it all makes sense. It makes sense that she made it right. And before we go any further, I have to ask this question. I already know the answer, but the audience needs to hear this. It is maybe the cutest Story I've ever heard in my life about how a couple met and kissed for the first time. You guys told me and my jaw dropped because it's just like beyond adorable. So maybe,
8: Nate, how did that happen? Yeah. So I had graduated college and uh, we were doing a show together. This is back in
7: Minnesota. We're both from Minnesota.
8: And we were both understudying the leads. And I had a crush on this girl, but, you know, first met her. She had a boyfriend. I'm respectful. Waited for that to finish up. And... um, and then there was one night, it was probably show number 93 or so, and uh, the leads collided on stage in the first scene. And like physically collided? Physically collided. His tooth hit her in the forehead. And all of a sudden, I mean, we've got blood, we've got a missing tooth. They stop the show. The god Mike comes on and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going we're gonna to take a brief break and 30-minute uh, break, come back. And so they tried to clean up everything. We jumped into those costumes and... I mean we
7: did the rest of the show together. We flew them on the magic carpet and
8: cuz it was a ladder. It was a it was so a production of Aladdin, Aladdin 17 years ago and yes. you were Jasmine. <laughs> yes, I'm, I mean
0: yes. This is radio so people can't see with all respect. Yeah. This Y'all was, are very white. Yeah.
7: Yes, we're both Norwegian. That both was the allies.
0: Norwegian. <laughs> uh, it was it was
7: y- years ago and in Minnesota. And actually, the two <laughs> the two actual leads were very ethnically correct, and they were amazing. Yeah. Um, so we. But we there was were the blood, covers.
0: and they were like quick, like go to the bullpen. Right. We got to bring in the relief pitchers.
7: There was actually like a little stain of blood on the dress I was getting into because this is regional theater. I don't have my own understudy costume. We're literally getting in their costumes, <laughs> and did yeah did the rest of the show And,
0: and then during the show aladdin and jasmine kiss yes. and that was your first that kiss. was our first yes kiss. yes
7: they actually get married at the end of the show like in a, my little like two-piece jasmine outfit we're coming down the aisles of the theater and yeah our first kiss was on stage everybody singing a whole new world and rose petals falling
8: i had a moment too where i was i was watching her come down the aisle in that little uh two, two piece two-piece wedding wedding dress and i thought Man, is this foreshadowing? Because I really liked this girl. And about two weeks later, one week later, we were dating officially. Wow. Yeah, a wow. few, days. Yeah, a a few, few days. days. yeah. And then, how long after that before you were married? On our one-year anniversary, I proposed, and uh, that was actually in the middle of the grease uh, competition that was happening out in LA. Mm-hmm. She had come back for a couple months' time, and uh, popped the question, and she said yes. And- oh. How exciting.
0: And by the way, we could go down a whole rabbit hole on Greece as well. Oh, sure, yes. And Olivia Newton-John passing away recently, and some of those epic, famous songs.
7: She was a judge on the reality show, so I got to meet her, and then she also came to see the Broadway show as well. She signed my get dressing room guest book and she said, From one Sandy to another, Olivia Newton-John, which I will always have.
0: That is something I would treasure if I were in your shoes. So now, flash forward, you're well past Minnesota regional theater. You're on Broadway. As I mentioned, two Tony nominations. What were they for?
7: They were for a musical um, called Bonnie and Clyde. I played Bonnie Parker and got to be an outlaw. And then for Cinderella, playing Cinderella um, in Rodgers and Hammerstein's very famous musical. You probably know like the Brandy movie or maybe Leslie Ann Warren. Um, It originated as a movie with Julie Andrews. And this was the first time it had been expanded into a full-length musical on Broadway.
0: So you have played Jasmine. You have played Cinderella. There's a whole production that you've been involved with in terms of Disney princesses across the board. And just for the audience, we will probably delve into that with some musical performances later this hour.
1: I can't wait. I think it's the first
0: singing for real. We've had Cookie and C. Diddy and some quote-unquote music on this show. But this will be, I think, the first bona fide musical performance on The Guy Benson Show coming up a little bit later on. I'm so on. honored. But you're kind of flying high at this point. Everything's going well. You're at the Kennedy you know, Awards. Kennedy Center Honors, yes. That's on the artist
7: committee and performed several times. Yeah.
0: So it's all going incredibly well. Is it at this point sort of like you're living literally the dream?
7: Yes, I was, I mean, so blessed to have so much favor in in my career, got to do six Broadway shows leading the companies, um, which was such a gift. Yes, my dream come true from when I was at, when I was young. And in the meantime, I was doing concerts. I started doing concerts and singing with symphonies and doing cabaret gigs, traveling across the country. And um, I made a couple albums um, and, yeah, was very, very grateful to get to do what I loved. And I think we thought we were like New Yorkers for life.
0: Yeah. When did you move to New York? Where were you living in New York? You had a whole
8: social scene, right, sort of?
7: Oh, yeah. We, we lived there
8: in 2007. Right,
0: right
7: after. Yeah. We went on a week long honeymoon to Mexico and then packed a U-Haul and drove to New York and moved into an apartment on 42nd Street in like in Times Square. Wow, Yeah. <laughs> yes. That was
8: quite the building. We had Fantasia Barino in that building. And Sarah, is Sarah Brightman was in that building. It was just such a funny. You know those people. It was yeah. such an interesting New York experience. You're just like, where are we? Because so few people live
3: right. in Times right. Square. Yes. Exactly. But and there's a did. reason for that. Yeah. There we, is. With all due respect. For a
8: year, right? <laughs> And uh, and then we got up to uh, a different neighborhood where there was more strollers and a little bit more families. and
7: Closer and to Central Park, some greenery. Normal life
8: was happening,
7: right?
0: So you guys at this point have all these opportunities, parties, shows. You were living that life. And then, like it was for the rest of us, the pandemic arrived, hugely disruptive in every way. For sure. And then things got especially strange for you guys because of – the vaccines and because of the community that you were involved in, and everything that we were just talking about just kind of evaporated almost overnight. I want to talk about that next. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm here with Laura Osnes and Nate Johnson, her husband, and they are both actors and singers extraordinaire. Laura, (laughs) a huge star on Broadway, and when we left off we were talking about Kind of how much you had broken through and were living your childhood dream in New York. You guys are married, deeply enmeshed in the Broadway scene. And then COVID hit. Of course, Broadway shut down for a long period of time. There was a lot of anxiety across many segments of our economy. People not really sure if they could make a living. It was a highly stressful time for many. Then finally the vaccine arrived and we were told that. This was our ticket back to normalcy. And my position, just so you know, here on the show was pro-vaccine, anti-mandate. So I got the vaccine. I encouraged my parents and family and friends to get the vaccine. We talked about that. We had doctors on the show and all of that. But I also felt like some of the mandates were a little over the top and very coercive. And we seemed to get into, like, really intense culture war-type standoffs over some of this stuff. Right. And you guys were in the – Crosshairs, yes. right in the crossfire of one of these culture wars on Broadway. In short, how did this happen, and how quickly did this happen?
7: Sure, um, I had been offered a one-night concert. I was getting paid a couple hundred dollars to do on Long Island, and um, suddenly the venue changed its policy to mandate the vaccine. And so the director reached out to everybody privately. And this was
0: 2021? Yes, yep. summer okay. of
7: 2021, August of 2021. And um, I was honest with her and I said, I'm not currently vaccinated. That was right, that was before most mandates were put in place. And before like m- most other people had been like called out for being unvaccinated. Like it wasn't a thing yet. Like mandates weren't really in place, but this this venue was mandating. And I was honest with the director. I said, I'm not yet currently vaccinated. And I was willing to give up this, you know, little one night gig to just wait a little longer, find out a little bit more. We were just in a place where we weren't feeling quite um, at peace about moving forward with getting it. I'm not anti-vax. I never took a stance on it or a, any sort of public stand. I was just like, oh, I just, I will quietly back out and just wait a little longer. And a week later, There was an article in the New York Post saying that I was fired for refusing to be vaccinated. And the article had a series of untruths about how the events went down, saying that my co-star begged me to get vaccinated for the sake of his children. Um, He has one
8: child, by the way.
7: He has one child. (laughs) And that, like, it it used words like spies on the inside, blah, 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 blah. Like, it was – and just kind of defamed me overnight and attacked my character. Someone
0: leaked this, obviously Mm – To hurt you and to shame you. That
7: is what it seems. Why else do you do that?
0: Yeah, no, that's obviously what happened. (laughs) And you can sort of try to figure out who did it and why and what the motives were. But the fact is it happened. Yes. Mm -hmm. Then what? Because this is like a one minor gig one-off thing. Oh, yeah. And then it exploded into like the whole career being threatened, really.
7: Exactly. Randomly, this article f- hit like wildfire, and every outlet picked it up and made an example and took these untruths and ran with them. We, ha- we hadn't even started rehearsal yet. You know, the- and then the narrative became that I had lied or that I was vague, that I was vague about my status. Which and people I had-
8: ran with that idea that, oh, you lied about your status, which was
7: not true. Not true. In fact, I was truthful and felt like I was being punished for actually telling the truth. And my privacy was completely breached. And it was done in such a demonizing way that, yeah, the and the, the industry is clearly very one-sided on this issue. And there was no acceptance. Well, on many issues. Yeah. Truth. Um, yes. There was no uh, ability to have a conversation or understand a differing perspective. I actually decided to craft a response, uh, which I posted five days later saying, Everybody should have the right to choose what they want to do. I'm making the choice that is right for me in this moment and in an effort to kind of correct how the events of, of what happened went down and it only made things worse. Um, and so now, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of true colors of people within the industry and I have no desire to return to that. So because that's, it's-
0: I, I really want to get into that because that's another sort of fascinating part of social shaming and people being ostracized and – Overnight, just night and day. After
7: 15 years of a career, of friends and a reputation and a lifestyle that we had built there.
0: Did this make you, Nate, angry watching what was happening to your wife?
8: Yeah, I was furious. Um, I think especially when there's something that's untrue being said about your partner. Um, and I, one of the things that I look at Laura, and she has worked so hard to develop uh, you a know, reputation, character, uh, that is completely blameless and so for her to the the narrative to be out there that she lied about it or that she had you know somehow put her her co-stars at risk was just so frustrating you just want to make it right unfortunately there's at some point you there's there's only so much you can do because nobody wants to hear it some of it and and i i want to continue this some of it is probably there are some
0: bad malicious people sure and then there were also probably some scared selfish people who kind of wanted to stand up for you but didn't know how and didn't want to have happen to them what was happening to you. Because it's it's pretty cutthroat industry. Right. People look at it through a zero-sum prism some of the time, and it's like, all right, well, that's not good. I'm sorry it's happening to them, but I don't want that to be me. But still, when you're the other person, it doesn't matter what their motive is. It still sucks for you. Where people – Not reaching out, not returning phone calls, did opportunities just dry up? What were you experiencing?
7: Yes, all of that. Like, it's so well said, because there were people that reached out in an effort to go, like, I care. But most of them made a point to say, I don't agree with you, but just want to check in. Like, everyone had to say how they couldn't, they didn't support me, but they loved me enough to care. But I think the fact, the thing that was so hard was that no one seemed to be able to publicly defend me. So it it just, yeah, they let me burn in the fire and, and let it crash. Um, which was, uh, yeah, which was very hurtful, and this I not know not just
0: a career and work and money, and that that all matters a ton, sure. but also just personal relationships.
7: I work, yeah, I work very hard to establish a good reputation, and we, you know, I felt like my calling was to love my community and my people in New York, which, you know, we tried to do for fifteen years, and then I I respect anybody's opinion too. Like I'm like, great, get vaccinated. I I have no judgment toward any toward anybody for making the decision they felt they needed to make but that that kindness was not reciprocated and no one <laughs> came to my defense and so we just um we we I felt like we had to escape it but we felt like it was no longer safe for us in new york city
0: and so you did to tennessee yeah which is where we all met and then a new chapter in the life in the career began down south we'll talk about that right after this on the guy benson show
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. A very unusual happy hour, but really interesting and fun. Laura Osnes and Nate Johnson are in studio with me here in D.C., both with a theater background. Laura, a huge Broadway star for years. And if you're just joining us, first of all, you have to go back and listen to the first part of this interview on our free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. They were living the life in New York City, and then it emerged somewhat unfairly, I would say, and with lack of accuracy, that Laura had chosen not to immediately go and get vaccinated against COVID. This turned into a giant sort of scandal and stir within that theater community. And it became pretty clear that you guys achieved almost instantaneously persona non grata status. And at some point, you couldn't even stay in the city anymore, because it was over. It just wasn't going to happen. And you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, were sort of out a little bit as conservatives and christians which is probably unusual in that group to begin with did it feel like this was maybe just like the straw that broke the camel's back a little bit
8: nate yeah i think that there was probably a little bit of a target on that on our back for that i think that there was a there was a moment where um you know memberchange.org was like a yeah. website you know i i remember a while ago laura being a part of a concert that somehow was controversial to some people and i and there was a something that went out that You know, try to cancel Laura Austin's type thing, which I I thought was so wild. And that was years ago. Um, And so when this kind of came up. There was a
0: petition to cancel you. Yeah. It it was (laughs) kind of a wild time. People really need to get a life. But that was petty and sort of you were able to get past it. This. COVID thing was a backbreaker.
7: Yes, I, I think that is the case. I mean, we're we're very proud of our faith. I Absolutely. you know what I mean? I'm not I'm not ashamed of that. And I feel like as far as being conservative, like I guess I was raised with conservative values. I'm from the Midwest and from Minnesota. And but I was never outspoken about anything. I'm like, I sing and dance and act. It's not my place to tell anybody what to do and how to think or how to vote. But I think, again, because the theater community, specifically new york um, and in that community, everybody is very outspoken mm-hmm. so if you if you 're not silence is violence yep, became right. became the mantra and well it's
0: it's not only <laughs> the norm it's also like expected that you be outspoken and very performative, so to speak, about your beliefs among yes. a bunch of performers, so there was maybe some suspicion of you for that reason to begin with, and then obviously it all came to a head before we move on to this new part of your career and your life together in Tennessee before you left New York City did you ever have a moment where you were like let's just get the stupid shots and move on
7: hmm i think i i wished it was that easy yes i if i could have avoided this whole thing i would have been like absolutely however and i and i crafted this in my response for me it would came down to three things when this all happened i was like privacy and freedom i value freedom and i and i that is willing I'm willing to fight for that. And so that was something for me that actually made me double down on my stance not to get it when I was attacked in this way and going, is anybody willing to sacrifice anything for a freedom of choice? Secondly, part of it was medical and part of it going, this feels a little bit like an experiment and we don't know any long-term effects and I just feel like we should wait, you know? And then the third thing for me was just a conviction in my my heart that just didn't feel peace about it at that point. And
0: also... I feel like by that point, if you had gone and gotten the shots, and again, I got them proudly, I I thought that was the right decision for me, and we talked to doctors about why here on the show, if you had just said, all right, fine, I'm caving, here, I got the jab, here's my photo. It was too late. The The, damage was done. The well was poisoned. (laughs) Yeah. The tribalism had kicked in, and they were going to exact some sort of punishment on you for this episode. Right. So you decided to move. When exactly? How did that
8: decision get made? And how did you choose Tennessee? Well, I think- First off, I had a photography studio in the West uh, West Chelsea area that uh, really was affected by shutdowns, and um, and so one of the one of the reasons we were looking at other places than New York was because uh, we wanted to be in a place that was not going to lock things down again. If this happens again, how's how's the city going to be re- respond in the mm-hmm. state? And so Tennessee was one of those places that we were. It seemed pretty open um, earlier on, and um, that was one of the spots.
7: We have family. Nate but has we also family, family. Memphis. In Memphis.
8: Yep. And so I have
7: a business partner in Nashville, and we had been several times going like. Also, it's it's a music. Yeah, exactly. It feels like there's still lots of art and music and creativity creativity, happening here, but also a a piece that is just so lovely. We live like around the corner from like horse fields, and yet we're 25 minutes from downtown Nashville, and we can, you know, get so many of the same things. And so, yeah, priorities kind of began to shift. And Nate also has a production company in New Orleans. So we found ourselves kind of having coming to the south a lot anyway to visit family and do other work stuff and uh we nate loves zillow so we were you were like always on zillow we ended up finding a house yes that really felt like the right fit and put in an offer and then we rescinded the offer out of fear going like i'm losing jobs how are we going to pay for this and then woke up the next morning again feeling like i think this is supposed to be our house and despite the fear we put in an offer um, and then there was already an offer on it, so then we were like, "Okay, well, I guess it isn't supposed to happen." And then that offer fell through, and we got it. So it feels like the whole thing was just kind of like a miracle. And that was I to would guess
0: you probably have a little bit more space.
7: Oh, yeah, in yes. Tennessee, <laughs> than then
0: in Manhattan, thousands yes. more. Uh-huh. square <laughs> feet. is oh, it's so beautiful. We do love some square footage.
7: We have a dishwasher for the first time in thirteen years. Well,
0: congratulations! And Thank you. Disposal? Yes, That's garbage disposal. I'm thrilled for you both. Truly totally thrilled. <laughs> Let's talk about the EP. Great. because i feel like some of your process of trying to heal from what was a personal and professional trauma has been of course to channel it through your music so you have this sort of short album called on the other side yeah. or the, is it the other side or on the on other, the other s- side on the other side yeah okay. that's it and there's the title track which is beautiful it's and so actually let's start with that cuz it's like a little bit upbeat it has a little country twang to yeah, it a to bit. my ear at least let's listen just to a piece of On the Other Side.
6: She's got it all. She's so in love. She's got the look. She's got the job. She's got it good. Ain't insecure. Must be easier. But on the other side of the world.
0: So listening to this song, Laura, I think anyone who lives in the social media age can relate to this, where you look as you scroll on Instagram or whatever at other people's lives, and it's this idealized version of it, and you say, look how perfect that is, and I wish I had this, that, or the other, and then you kind of turn it around and say someone's feeling that way about you also, and I think that there's something unhealthy about that part of our culture. There's something beautiful and good about it too – But it can mess with people. For sure. And clearly you've written a song about it. you performed it. And I think it's it's resonant for a lot of people. Have you gotten feedback like that?
7: Yes, that is exactly it. I was inspired to write it um, based on both my own things. Same thing. Like uh, the things I post... Sure, are trying to be my best self. And I get people all the time that are like, oh, like, I wish I could be you. And then I'm like, wait, you have no idea the trouble or the pain that I'm dealing with. Well, I put that same thing on other people going like, oh, their life looks perfect. I wish it could be them. So I uh, I think it's, it is a, a troublesome thing with social media and our society today. And I felt inspired to write about it. And especially in this time in my life, um, that whole idea was really brought to light.
0: There's another song, one track called Bitter, which... Kind of speaks for itself. You've been through a lot, and you decide that you were going to just express some of those emotions through song. Let's listen to part of Bitter.
6: Like a puppet, I was strung along. In my darkest hour, you did.
0: You sing that you needed space and grace. You got both of those things in your new home. Yes. And your new state, which is pretty cool. You also talk about heartbreaking in two. A lot of musical lyrics singing about that. It's the end of a relationship or something romantic. This is obviously about a different sort of heartbreak that you experience. Is it an exaggeration or not an exaggeration to say that what happened in New York was heartbreaking?
7: Oh, for sure, and uh, such a shock. I mean, I hope you've gotten that from listening so far. But it's, it is essentially my my breakup with New York song. Um, and do you want to dedicate
0: like- the song to anyone in particular? <laughs>
7: you want to do that? No, no, that's no. It's okay. It's okay. Not today.
0: <laughs> oh, I was trying to get a little bit of good tea. <laughs>
7: but you know, there's another song called Great Divide, and that's kind of about the the loss of friendships and and the relationships going like I still love you, I still care about you, but what happened? I don't know whether to feel. The pain from the loss of using of losing you, or anger over kind of the betrayal that I felt, and so it's you know I I wrote these songs out of a truthful place, and that that's where I was at the time. I did feel bitter, and I I I also had to think about what message I want to put out in the world. I'm a very positive person, um in in life, um generally, and yeah, but you also have to
0: be honest. That's, that's right. it. That's right. And to be and, like, oh, here I am. My life's great, but there are still some embers. Yes. And it's okay to talk about that.
7: Yes. Bitter was actually at first called Grateful. There was the chorus that was going, despite all these things have happened, I'm choosing to be grateful. And then I I walked away from that. (laughs) You're like fact check. Yes. I walked away from that session going like, this is not actually how I feel. And we got back together and reimagined the whole song. And I feel like bitter, that's truth. That was my place of truth in that moment. And I feel like so many people have listened to it and gone, it could be about a relationship. It could be about that. Or so many listeners have also been in similar situations that I have and felt the effects of mandates and how, how their lives were so gravely affected or their relationships were affected over the issues of the last year that really drove people apart. And people have said, like, with your specificity comes universality and i'm i'm thrilled to know that people are also needing this music as much as i have
0: you also have a new christmas song fell for you with chuck wicks yes. it is great it's fantastic very country <laughs> it's beautiful i was listening to it earlier Thanks. people can check all of this out we have to take a break. Quickly, is there a website? If people want to find this music, find out more about you, where do people go?
7: Yes, I have a website. It's Laura Osnes. My name, O-S-N-E-S dot com. Also, if you follow me on social media, which is also my name, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. You have a huge you- following. I lost a lot of followers, though, throughout all this. I lost about 30,000 followers on my Instagram, and I'm hoping to reach a new audience of well, people. Well, you that- have
0: a new one in me. And so
7: thanks, we're, Guy. We're
0: building back better.
7: There we
6: as,
0: go. As the president <laughs> might say. How about that? There we go. When we come back... Back with Laura Osnes and Nate Johnson. As promised, a little Disney sing-along because I can't resist on the Guy Benson Show happy hour. That's the home stretch coming up.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More
3: next
0: home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday from DC. GuyBensonshow.com. Podcast is always free on demand. Special report tonight. I'm on the panel. Hope you can tune in. Fox News Channel around quarter to seven Eastern time. With me here in studio, Laura Osnes and her husband, Nate Johnson. And we're going to do a little Disney sing-along. So Laura actually co-created this touring concert series, Disney's Princess, where it was just a bunch of princess songs throughout the, the Disney years and the whole series of very famous, many iconic songs. And because of everything that we've been talking about this hour, she really hasn't been a part of that recently, which is such a shame for the audiences because she's so good. (laughs) And I'm not even a huge Disney person. We do have a few people here at the show who are big into Disney. But some of these songs just bring me back to my childhood. And some of the medleys I've seen of you on social (laughs) media, on YouTube, they put a smile on my face. And so I just was hoping you'd be willing to maybe sample a couple songs.
7: I would be honored. Okay. All right. So
0: I put together a little list. <laughs> oh, and we'll, amazing. We're going to try to do this like somewhat rapid fire. Got it. So why don't we start with Part of Your World, Little Mermaid?
7: Oh, I want to be
6: where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those. What do you call them? Oh,
0: Feet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's my contribution, by the way, the singing. All right, so this one I didn't know, but you had mentioned that you love Tangled. Yes. And a song called I See the Light. Oh, yes,
6: yes. Okay. Um, And at last I see the light, and it's like the fog has lifted. And at last I see the light, and
7: it's like the sky is new.
0: Very pretty. pretty. That's a new one for me.
7: You have to watch the movie. It's so good. It's one of Disney's best. We I should will, have a viewing party.
0: I, I'm in. Come right. down to Tennessee. We'll watch Tangle we go. together. You got it, there exactly. Go. What about Colors of the Wind, Pocahontas? Oh,
6: let's see. Um, have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon or ask the grinning bobcat why he grinned? Can you sing with all the voices of the mountain? Can you paint with all the colors of the wind?
0: It's a beautiful song. It is. It's a good one. One of my favorite Disney movies ever. It was the first movie I ever saw in the theater as a little kid living overseas. It was a big deal to go see an American movie living in Hong Kong wow. Beauty and the Beast oh. opening number <gasps> Belle oh
7: my gosh
8: you
0: Michael. kind of look like Central casting Belle <laughs> as far as I'm concerned so take it away Belle
7: no Belle was like my childhood favorite too let's see um, little town it's a quiet village
6: every day like the one before. Little town full of little people waking up to say...
3: Bonjour. Bonjour. Bonjour.
0: <laughs> That's And it makes sense because I think we're the same age. So it would make sense that that, that was movie era. in particular... I love Mrs. Potts and the... You know, tale as old as time. Angela in that whole...
7: Lansbury. I mean, Ugh. legendary.
0: Absolute legend. Okay. Aladdin. Guys, you met Babe. during Aladdin. This is your moment. Uh, let's do a little A Whole New World.
6: Okay. A whole new world Don't you dare close your eyes A hundred thousand things breath, to see better. I'm like a shooting star I've come so far I can't go back to where I a used whole new to be world. Every turn a surprise a new fantastic Every moment red view. letter I'll, I'll chase, chase them anywhere, anywhere. There's, There's time, time to spare, spare. Let me share this whole new world with you.
0: Oh, right. <laughs> I like have some goosebumps. It's amazing. It's
7: very like m- morning, midday. I was like, can I get some reverb on this mic? <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is just talk radio, ma'am. Would, we are doing our best. Last but not least, can we impose upon you to do a little
7: Let It Go? Oh my God! Frozen. Okay, my favorite part of that song is the bridge. <laughs> okay, here we go. I got. I got to back up my power flurries through the
6: air into the ground my soul is spiraling in frozen fractals all around and one shot crystallizes like an icy blast i'm never going back the past is in the past let it go okay yeah
0: (laughs) awesome uh this was really fun your story is amazing. You guys were such great sports to come in and talk about this. And I know it's not easy because it's been a hard time, but you're coming through the other side of it, which is fun, which is sort of a reference to the, to EP. the
7: album for sure. I feel like it's been a cool season of finding my voice in a whole new way, both uh, musically and artistically, as well as me Laura and my backbone and what I want to say and how I want to tell my story and it's um there's been so much growth I feel like there's been um, so much fortitude and strength built from having to go through something hard and um, I'm excited for people to get to hear it so thank you
0: Nate Johnson Laura Osnes it's Laura yes. people can find everything right there and also you're all over social media as I mentioned I'm a new follower as well guys thank you so much this was great thank Guy, you it's a guys thank you and that's all the time we have today Same time, same place tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Thank you for listening.
1: From the Fox News
2: Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.